until after Easter. And we're going to start today a short three-part special Easter sermon series in uh, Revelation. And it's particularly with an eye, of course, to our current uh, world pandemic situation. So today we are going to start with uh, Revelation chapter 6. So before uh, we look at that further together, uh, let me pray for us and ask for God's help to understand his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we reflect together over these next three uh, services together today, Good Friday and Easter uh, Sunday, uh, we pray that as we reflect on these passages from the New Testament letter of Revelation, that the message, the timeless message, would ring true for us and that we would see and hear your voice in it and understand more clearly how it encourages us and strengthens us to live in the times which we are in as we wait and live between the times of Christ's first and second coming and we wait for his return. Well, as we're all too aware at present, uh, suffering in our world uh, affects everybody. Uh, nobody can immunize themselves against suffering, not one person. And for Christians, it throws up many tricky and uh, difficult tensions and questions. So when I... Oh, I an act of God. Well, last week, on the 27th of March, Pope Francis gave his view in a special COVID-19 live stream address. He actually said that the worldwide coronavirus pandemic was not God's judgment on humanity. Rather, he said, it was God's call on people to judge what was most important to them and to resolve to act accordingly. Well, I searched in vain for any theological statement of any substance from uh, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is, of course, the head of the global Anglican Communion. Uh, all Justin was prepared to do was, in his address, offer practical advice, and that boiled down to pray. Well, uh, the Moderator General of the Presbyterian Church of Australia fared much better. In his statements on the 19th of March, the Reverend Dr. Peter Barnes said in his usual straight-talking down-to-earth manner, all afflictions are from God. So what would you say if the journalist shoved the microphone into your face? How do we account for the suffering being wrought by this pandemic? Because as well as suffering generally in the world, there is also another sort of suffering we need to think about today. It is less prominent in the media, but no less real. And that is the suffering of the global church under the club of persecution. Uh, tragically, in the 20th century, more Christians were martyred, that is killed for their faith, than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Uh, does that statistic disturb you? Organizations such as Open Doors highlights the plight of Christians around the world today. And it is, of course, harrowing to read the Open Doors World Watch List. That is the list which ranks companies, a country, sorry, according to the severity of the persecution that the Christians face there. 
So when you hear this, uh, is there not a voice within which asks, how can God allow this? Uh, what on earth is God doing? Similar questions, of course, also arise in our hearts when we encounter suffering in our own lives or we see suffering in the lives of our loved ones and our friends. Where is God in this? As Christians, do you feel the tension? Uh, let me try and put my finger on it. As Christians, uh, we believe, of course, that the risen and ascended Christ, he is reigning today. Uh, he is supreme over everyone and everything right at this very moment. And yet often what we see happening in the world around us doesn't seem to quite bear that out. Instead of Christ reigning, uh, does it not seem that evil and suffering seem to reign? Uh, they appear to have a free hand to wreak the havoc and misery wherever they choose. And then do we not start to subconsciously ask these questions? Uh, does my Christian faith really offer a coherent view of reality? Uh, does our encounter with suffering uh, sometimes erode our confidence in Christ's present re reign overall? And the question we're going to ask this morning then is, how can such doubts be routed? And how can faith be justified? And that's why we're going to turn today to Revelation chapter 6, because it has much to say which addresses this very tension. Although, as we're going to see, there is a surprising twist in the tale. Uh, before we look more closely at Revelation chapter 6, let's firstly uh, set the context and the purpose of this first century letter. Uh, the first three chapters of Revelation show that it was written to Christians who were faming, uh, facing a tsunami of evil and oppression. These Christians were afflicted with persecution uh, at everywhere they turned. Uh, they were pers persecuted by the Roman authorities, but also by uh, the aggressive Jews. And consequently, uh, the wheels of their faith were starting to wobble in many cases. And therefore, the concern of the whole letter of Revelation is to provide Christians with the framework to faithfully endure in the face of suffering. And whereas the first three chapters of Revelation provide this, if you like, embedded reporter ground level perspective on the situation of the churches, in chapter four, that perspective changes. Uh, John, the letter's author, is invited in a vision into the throne room of heaven. And John is allowed privileged access to the heavenly courts. And there John is granted this divine perspective on these earthly events, which typify this period between Christ's first and second coming. And in chapter six of Revelation, uh, from this lofty vantage point, the author is given insight into the place of suffering in God's purposes. That is both in the world generally, but also in the church specifically. So, uh, as you've seen in your bulletin outline, uh, we're going to see three things this morning. The source of suffering. Secondly, the tension of suffering. And thirdly, the resolution of suffering. Uh, so firstly, uh, the source of suffering. And we come to what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In chapter six, it's as if the world is now viewed 
through spectacles which discern the evil malevolent forces which are at work in the world. And these forces are metaphorically pictured as four horsemen, what have become famously known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, if you're thinking this would make uh, great movie material, you're actually too late because the four horsemen of the apocalypse was first written as a novel in 1918 and later adapted to the big screen in 1921 and 1962. And therefore, of course, it would seem ripe for a Hollywood remake any time now. And the four horsemen bring suffering and hardship that is all too familiar on our daily news channels. Uh, the first rider on a white horse is bent on conquest, but it is not for good. He brings war. And look at verse two. I looked and there before me was a white horse and its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Uh, the second rider is on a fiery red horse, which symbolically represents the bloodshed arising from conflicts, both internationally and nationally. Uh, look at verse four. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. Of course, the work of his hands is rarely far from our news channels. Uh, the third rider on the black horse brings economic hardship. Uh, the basic staples for life are in short supply as indicated by the scales, and the price of food goes through the roof. Uh, look again at verse six. A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Uh, these prices are between eight and 16 times inflated over what they should be. So you can see what it's conveying. It's a time of economic catastrophe. The writer seems to have been particularly, uh, that horse seems to be particularly active in these last few weeks. And the fourth rider on the pale ashen horse seems to bring a cataclysmic summary of all the others. His name is Death and Hades, that is the place of death, is close behind him. At verse eight, they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. So do you see the image? Uh, it is one of world, a world staggering under the weight of both human inflicted malevolence and nature, uh, an economic disaster. It's a picture of evil and death, which seemingly runs amok unchecked. Don't you think he's got the vibe of our world at the present? And yet there is also undoubtedly a level at which this also describes the suffering of the church. You see, often it is the Christians that particularly suffer in times of disaster and unrest. And this pandemic will be no exception. It is actually highly likely that totalitarian states will use this time of stricter population control to persecute and restrict the church. And in some countries, Christians at this time 
or suffer discrimination. Uh, they in those countries are second class citizens and they will have difficulty accessing medical care and emergency relief. And the question is this, how can the risen reigning Christ possibly allow this? And when we look more closely at the context of chapter six, we're gonna see something quite startling becomes clear. Because Christ not only allows this suffering, he actually commissions it. On Easter Sunday, we're gonna to look together at Revelation chapter five. And there we will be introduced to a scroll with seven seals. And the contents of the scroll represent God's plan of salvation and judgment. And with the breaking of each seal on this scroll, the plan of God is progressively revealed and put into action. And yet who is the one who breaks the seals? It's a figure referred to as the lamb. And there are no prizes for guessing who this is. It is, of course, the risen reigning Christ. And so then, in now, in chapter 6, as Christ opens each seal, it prompts a living creature to summon the horseman with the command, in each case, come. And we see that in verses 1, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. Uh, chapter 4 of Revelation shows us that these living creatures are the good guys. Uh, they are angelic beings that worship God and do his bidding. And with each summons, the living creatures grant the necessary divine authority to the bad guys, that is, the horsemen, to carry out their dark work. Uh, one is given a crown, another is given a sword, and the others are given power. So do you get the point? Whilst the four horsemen of the apocalypse are evil, they are under God's control. And it is Christ who is intentionally sanctioning not only the general suffering in the world, but also the, the persecution of the church. Why would Christ sanction hardship on his people? How could this be? Well, the answer lies in the Old Testament context. It's helpful to remember that Revelation was not written in a vacuum. That Revelation is not a literary greenfield site. That Revelation is part of a body of what are called apocalyptic writings in the Bible. Uh, they are a community of documents that together trace the trajectory of God's purposes. Uh, Revelation takes up and continues themes introduced earlier in the Old Testament. Revelation 6 uses these other apocalyptic passages, if you like, as a quarry for its own imagery and message. Uh, these passages provide a context for understanding the imagery used in Revelation. Uh, Ezekiel 14 is one of those passages, and it feeds into Revelation chapter 6. Ezekiel chapter 14 contains four evil judgments that God unleashes upon idolatrous nations. Uh, in Ezekiel 14 verse 21, the four plagues are summarized as sword, famine, plague, and wild beasts. Uh, does that sound familiar? This summary is directly quoted in Revelation 6 verse 8 in summarizing the destructive effects of the four horsemen. 
And yet back in Ezekiel 14, the big shock is which nations God judges for their idolatry. Because the shock is it includes God's own people, unfaithful Israel. So you see, the context of Ezekiel 14 helps us to understand the purposes of the judgments brought by the four horsemen in Revelation 6. They serve a twofold purpose, to punish, but also to purify. They punish those who have rejected God and opposed his purposes and his people, both in society generally, but also in the church specifically. And they also purify the faithful, refining their faith like pure gold, as we saw recently in James chapter 1. And part of that purifying includes the role of warning believers who are wavering to keep going, to persevere, and to not compromise their faith. So you see, the Bible would beg to differ with Pope Francis. God has sanctioned the COVID-19 pandemic. It is part of his judgment on a rebellious world. Uh, that is not to say, of course, that those who are dying are more sinful than those who survive. Rather, it's God's judgment in a more global sense. So, uh, firstly, we've looked at the source of suffering. Let's now consider the tension of suffering. The presence of such suffering in the world brings a tension for Christians. Uh, we feel it. And even martyred believers who are now in the presence of the Lord also feel it. Looking at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Here is the tension between the supreme reign of the sovereign Lord and the persecution of his church. The question asked reflects the tension. How long will the sovereign Lord allow this injustice to continue? When? Will Christ's reign be fully and finally acknowledged by all? When will all wrongs finally be righted? When will Christ's name be vindicated and all scoffers and arrogant oppressors finally be confounded? And the answer, of course, comes in verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Wait a little while longer. Be patient. The sovereign Lord is in control. And as our Calvinistic reformed theology wonderfully affirms, the sovereign Lord is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign even to the extent of having predetermined the duration of the church's suffering 
that serves his good purposes. Uh, the church's suffering will continue until the day that Christ has set, and not a day longer. At verse 11 again, wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. It's all part of the Lord's good purposes uh, to punish and to purify, to judge and to save. So we've seen firstly the source of suffering, uh, secondly the tension of suffering, finally the resolution of suffering. Uh, Christ not only permits the suffering of the righteous, as with Job, uh, he actually commissions it in his good purposes, and yet he has already determined the boundaries as to when it will end. And with the breaking of the sixth seal, we are given a glimpse of that final future day. Uh, this is the day of God's cosmic final judgment, when the suffering of the church and the creation will finally cease. Uh, the extent of the cosmic upheaval is dramatically conveyed using figurative imagery. Uh, look again at verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And on that day, both great and small are reduced to a cowering, terror-stricken huddle. On that day, the enormity of their rebellious error becomes apparent. For those who are mighty now are no longer mighty, for they come face to face with the one who is truly mighty in all his terrifying splendor. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Whereas the sovereign reign of Christ is presently believed by faith, on that day the sovereign reign of Christ shall be proven by sight. As we're later going to sing in this service, see him coming on the clouds of heaven, every eye. Behold him now. So in conclusion, a few words of application. There is a tension between Christ's lordship and suffering in the world and suffering in the church and suffering in our lives. So how is Revelation chapter 6 an antidote and a balm that will strengthen our faith and enable us to persevere in spite of the tension. 
And there are two particular dangers which Revelation chapter 6 addresses. That is the loss of perspective and misguided expectations. Uh, firstly, the loss of perspective. Uh, the challenge for Christians in times of suffering is to maintain a proper perspective. In the midst of the current pandemic, uh, we are deluged, aren't we, day after day with horrific, distressing figures of infections and deaths. Uh, is there a tendency to allow the circumstances of what's going on in our world to loom larger and larger in our vision and for the sovereignty of God to recede? Uh, are we prone at times to viewing life and the church's welfare from an earthly perspective whilst forgetting the heavenly perspective? Do you find that our sinful hearts are prone to doubting God's goodness and his control? Uh, surely for all of us, there is a need to continually press the refresh button on our screen of faith to refresh our perspective. But there is also the second danger of misguided expectations. Uh, to varying degrees, most of us will have imbibed what Tim Keller helpfully calls uh, a saccharine view of life. Uh, saccharine, of course, is the artificial sweetener. Uh, a saccharine view of life holds that if we trust in God overall, uh, we expect things to go well for us. Uh, God should be acting in some way to protect us and the church from bad things. That would otherwise happen. And often the contours of our skewed thinking assume that if Christ is truly reigning, we personally and the church generally can expect progress, not persecution, a comfort, not the cross, success, not suffering, vindication, not vitriol. And yet, how did the risen ruling Lord establishes reign. I'm going to commemorate it next weekend. It was through the treading the path of disgrace and death. It's counterintuitive to our world and it's counterintuitive to our sinful minds. And yet if we are to follow this Lord, we need to tread the same path. So what is the priceless corrective that Revelation chapter 6 provides to both of these dangers? The passage provides privileged access into the throne room of heaven. And it enables us to refresh our perspective. This scripture reminds us that the sovereign Lord is fully in control. Even in this pandemic. He does not permit suffering but actually commissions it. And he does so for a limited period in history for his good purposes. And that period will be ended and his name will be vindicated on his glorious return. And so whilst we wait for that day, the Lord is positively using suffering both to punish those who reject him, but also to purify those who trust him. And it's in that sense that all suffering, we can say, is an act of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, uh, please, we pray, uh, continue to refresh our perspective every day. Help us to continue every day to view our situation, particularly during this pandemic, from the throne room of heaven. Help us to remember every day that you are the sovereign Lord who is still in control. Uh, not only do you permit, but you actually sanction suffering in our world, but you use it ultimately for the good of your people and in the fulfillment of your purposes. Help us, we pray, to have a faith which is strengthened through these difficult times. And may others, as they look on, also see the reality of that faith and be drawn themselves to a trust in the risen reigning Christ, whom one day they will have to face in all his glory. Amen.